Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Frank Ferretti is with us today. He's a prominent intellectual and social commentator. He's been with us before. He is Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, author of many books, including the just-released 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization, which is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Ferretti. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Frank, we, uh, we, we, we go uh, right at the beginning. You note that many people, when they speak, often in a public forum, preface their statement with a comment with, uh, I identify as dot, dot, dot. What does this little declaration signify to you? I, th- I think what it signifies that is very interesting. It's in, in, it signifies the fact that your ideas, your commitments, your achievements are not what you put forward in public, you know, you're not speaking as a Catholic or as a communist or as a Republican or as a liberal. You are saying that I'm speaking as a woman, I'm speaking as a gay person, I'm a black woman, I speak as as a disabled individual. Basically what you're saying is that what really matters is the way you perceive yourself, your, your biology, what really matters are things that are not really your accomplishments, not things that you've achieved, but in a sense what your identity is. And I think it, it kind of speaks to the ascendancy of, the, of identity politics, that this has become so such a routine, such a normal way of talking about yourself and the way that, that people talk about other people. Yeah. And this is where we are now. You want to, as your title says, you want to go back 100 years. And you do go back and give us something of a history of this century. What did the term identity crisis, we heard a lot about that a while ago. We don't hear that quite so much anymore. But what did in the past the term identity crisis signify? Uh, Was this... Was this simply some, I mean, well, I'll let you get into this as a normal phase of development, as things about adolescence, but, but tell us. Well, it's a very interesting concept because uh, a lot of people imagine that there's always been an identity crisis and people talked about identity. It's actually a relatively new concept in historical terms. It kind of begins to be used in the late, in the middle 40s, 1940s, and in particular, it begins to be used in relation to American soldiers who return from the war and no longer know their place in this world. And in the 1940s, it was used in a very narrow sense, as a, in a very clinical sense. But what's fascinating is that 
as time went along, decade by decade, you had the expansion of its usage. So for example, uh, by the 1950s, 1960s, you begin to talk about America's identity crisis. You begin to talk about companies' identity crisis. And you have this massive explosion of its usage that somehow institutions and nations and ethnic groups and individuals were all experiencing an identity crisis. And its meaning changed from one to do with the problems, the psychological problems of individuals who lost their place in the world, whose sense of belonging had been fractured by an experience to something that became very, very different. And I think one point the book tries to bring out is that because we suffer from a degree of historical amnesia, we forget the fact that that the discussions about identity, again, are relatively new. Nobody talked about identity before Second World War, no meaning. And it's really only in the 60s and the 70s that discussions of identity really kick in. What did, you, you, you cite many major thinkers, figures in this history from the past. What did Irving Goffman mean by the term politics of identity? I think what Goffman did, Goffman was a very, uh, probably one of the first individuals who noticed that uh, people's identity, their uh, sense of who they were and what they were about, gradually began to become politicized and became used as a political instrument for making claims upon society. And it, this is really something that you begin to see crystallized in the 1960s, and it's in the 1970s that the, the cultural politics of identity really kicks in, where basically what you're saying is that what really matters is your identity rather than the wider social issues. And you know, uh, it was in America that the, the idea of the personal is political was formulated and, and, and began to gain traction in the early 70s. And the idea that the personal, the identity-related matters are what really matter what you have to really take seriously and, and, and turn almost into this kind of quasi-ideology uh, gradually begins to become more and more influential and gradually begins to enter the mainstream of society. It will take another 15 or 20 years before it kind of kicks in with the mainstream, but it's already very, very influential in academic life and within cultural institutions. Frank, just quickly, what did they mean by, quote, the personal is political? I think that uh, the, it, 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 firstly, the, the, the first and most important legacy of that formulation is that the boundary between what's private and public is artificial and we shouldn't take it too seriously. Uh, because until that point, politics was a a public accomplishment. It's had to do with what citizens did in public life. Now it was suggested that the issues that uh, pertain to the domain of the private sphere, uh, family life, sexuality, intimacy, gender, all these things were uh, just as political as taxation or as transportation's infrastructure. That they had to be brought into the public domain and, and, and debated and discussed because it from their point of view, uh, sort of uh, how you saw yourself, how you were seen by others, uh, was a vitally important political issue. And it's at this point in time that people begin to insist 
that you're validated. I mean, today, the most extreme expression of that is transgenderism, where basically they insist that unless you use the right pronoun, you know, you're violating their very existence. And they basically don't just simply say that you got to use the right pronoun when you talk about them. They basically insist that you change the way you view them. So if what, what's in front of you looks like a man, uh, but they insist it's a woman, uh, you have to change your, your perception of reality. And I think that that's the ultimate uh, expression of the, of the personalist political, where personal preferences and personal uh, sort of sen sentiments uh, become uh, almost like a, a, a political resource that can be hurled in your face that you can you can put in the public domain to get the reforms to change the way that people are educated the way that people talk about one another and and ultimately get institutions to totally transform uh, th their rules just the social rules that they live by now the rationale for this openness of identity was to overcome repression of those identities right do you find that the acceptance, the open expression, the alignment of your, your being with a particular identity, uh, or do you, or do the clinical psychologists as well, think that this new assertion, embrace of identity leads to happiness, better outcomes for an individual, or do you see something else resulting from it? Well, advocates of identity politics uh, promote the, the, the idea of uh, fluidity as being really important, that, that by having a fluid attitude towards people's sense of themselves is, is very brave and, and gives people a, a grounding and, 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 and a, a wholeness that they, they lacked because of the old categories uh, were not sufficient. But I think that the idea that some uh, identity politics makes you feel better uh, is the very opposite to reality, because one of the tragic consequences of the quest for identity is that as you begin to search for your identity, it becomes an unending journey. It's like a, a never-ending pilgrimage to find yourself. And that's why you'll often find that uh, very often people embrace an identity only to drop it or to change it, adopt a different lifestyle choice later on, because it doesn't have that kind of satisfactory effect on you. And one of the most interesting things uh, that's often overlooked is that identity politics begins by emphasizing that it's socially constructed, it's very fluid, it's very changeable. But the minute that identities and, and advocates of identity politics uh, take, a, take a deep breath, they say the opposite. So if you take, for example, at the gay liberation movement, they used to argue that and that uh, being gay was a social construction. It was, it was something to do with people's choice. Um, and that, the argument was that you know, gay liberation was about giving people the choice of being gay. Whereas now, uh, you'll find that uh, that idea of being gay has changed, and you got a more fossilized version of identity. So a lot of gay activists say that there's no choice about being gay. They're, and they talk about gay genes, and how biology and neuroscience proves that being gay is, is their natural state. So you have this strange uh, uh, sort of uh, shift occurring in identity politics from emphasizing its fluid character, its choice-making, to one that basically says 
identity is destiny. This is who we are uh, in, in a kind of uh, one-sided fatalistic way. But the last point I want to make is that uh, what parallels identity politics is an explosion of mental health crisis. That the two things seem to go hand in hand. And although uh, identity activists talk about how this is really good for their mental health, and if you don't recognize their identity, they're going to be mentally ill and even commit suicide. Uh, one of the interesting things is, is that they get validated. Uh, but the moment they get validated, they raise the stakes and they uh, also escalate their demands because they recognize that their mental health has not improved, but if anything, has become more complicated. Hmm. What is the phenomenon of the pretendians, quote unquote? Well, pretendians is an American phenomenon. It's, it's really when American politicians and celebrities and individuals pretend to be what they're not. You know, and you had, uh, you know, for example, the senator from uh, Massachusetts, I think her name is Elizabeth Warren, you know, kind of claiming to have Native American, you know, sort of uh, her heritage and Native American identity, only to be repelled by Native Americans who call her a pretendian. You have sometimes uh, white people, you know, who are estranged from their own communities and culture, embracing uh, black culture and, 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 uh, kind of pretending to be black. Uh, a number of uh, academics have, have kind of you know, created this impression that they're, actually, they're black, whereas in fact they, they, they're white. And in general, what you, what you sometimes have is are celebrities trying to be you know, sort of associated with, with certain cultural trends that are popular among the young, particularly black music, and adopt the mannerisms and the, uh, and the way of speaking uh, and, and the identities of, 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 of black people as a way of, I suppose, of, of trying to find meaning in their existence. Uh, in a sense, this is, a, although it's an American phenomenon, it is, it is kind of exploding a little bit all over the world. And in Europe, we have a number of examples where uh, European uh, kind of uh, individuals have pretended to be Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. Whereas, in fact, they were neither Jewish nor involved in the Holocaust, but nevertheless, by embracing the uh, sort of the uh, the kind of the status and the prestige that uh, that that is that is linked to being a Holocaust victim, they hope to, in a sense, kind of uh, improve uh, their own individual and personal prestige. I wish I could do that, Frank. There's always hope, Mark. There's always hope. <laughs> Now, uh, you go back to an examination of the teenage years, and you actually speak of adolescence as a, quote, invention. What do you mean by that? What I, what I mean by that is that uh, until the late uh, 19th century, you lived in a world where you were either a child or you were an adult, and people didn't talk about teenagers or adolescents. You basically had uh, a, a very different view of, what human development was, uh, then once you have the introduction of adolescence, because what adolescence and teenage would really mean is that you create a, a new phase in the, in the cycle of, of human development, whereby you basically suggest that, that, that we kind of uh, create this group of individuals who are no longer children, but neither are they as adults, and therefore we, we give them a bit of breathing space to to be free of responsibility, the kind of responsibility that adults held, 
have, but also we uh, sort of spared them of, of treating them like children. And I think that invention of adolescence was, was really kind of quite important uh, because it was through the uh, changing perception of human development that uh, ideas about how you socialize people began to began to alter and began to change. And it, in particular, it led to a dramatic uh, re, uh, refiguring, configuring of what bringing people up child rearing was really all about, in the sense that until that, until you had the invention of adolescence, children were brought up uh, mainly by being, by influencing them with uh, the virtues of, of, of philosophy and, and giving them a strong sense of history. Uh, with the invention of adolescence, psychology becomes increasingly important and psychologists insist that they're the ones that best understand this, this difficult years, this transitionary years of the teenager, and therefore they should be in charge of, of bringing them up, socializing them, and uh, instructing parents and teachers how to do that in the most effective way. You, you said that this actually caused the creation of new institutions for the management of, of adolescence, you know, this, this uh, transitional stage. So it, it changed schooling entirely, correct? It did. And, and one of the most important developments of adolescence was the invention of the high school. Uh, so what happens is that you don't just simply have the expansion of public education, but you also have this new phenomenon of high school, which becomes uh, almost the, uh, the terrain on which uh, adolescence or, or teenage would flourishes. And, and the, the role of these high schools uh, perversely wasn't just simply to educate uh, teenagers, but also to expand the number of years that children spend in school. And one of the justification for keeping adolescents in school as long as possible was to basically uh, estrange them or at least psychically distance them from their parents and their communities so they would no longer be influenced by the old values of their ancestors of their community uh, but, or, and by their tradition, but would be uh, subjected to new, novel, modern values of, of, of what I see as a, a group of social engineers who were essentially pedagogues and psychologists. Well, uh, the, the, the idealization of youth you know, originally kicks in already in the 18th century with people like Rousseau and Goethe and German Romanticism. But I think what increasingly happens is that uh, in the late 19th century, uh, particularly progressives in the United States, but also in Northern Europe and elsewhere, begin to regard the youth as not just simply a, a biological phase that individuals go through, but begin to associate youth with the new world. So the youth becomes and is seen as the, as the vehicle of reform and social transformation. And the way that this kind of uh, is managed is, is, is not just by saying that the youth will be making the revolution or the youth will be changing the world. You also begin to romanticize them and endow them with all this creativity, this kind of braveness and courage and foresight and sensitivity, which apparently is lacking amongst adults or amongst children. 
and this romanticization of youth, which begins around the 1890s, over the decades becomes more and more powerful to the point at which today we have a situation where if you look at popular culture, it's almost as if the adult world lacks imagination. The adult world is insensitive and boring and rigid and not able to yield a new experience, whereas the youth have this kind of capacity to, to kind of bring the new into the world. They're digitally savvy. They understand. They can read the room. They're much more emotionally literate than their elders. And in many, many movies, you'll find that it's the youth that is still celebrated today and probably much more than ever before and romanticized as having this kind of uh, quality that, that is then lost once you begin to become an adult, uh, once you begin to become a grown-up. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. One of the, I think, genuine insights of your work uh, not only here but elsewhere, is the way in which you follow up secondary effects, uh, so to speak. One thing you note is that this invention of adolescence and then the idealization of youth, it doesn't just lift up youth, it also devalues adulthood. You, you, you said if youth are the vehicle reform, then adulthood, one concludes, uh, is the vehicle of stasis, of inertia, routine, <laughs> and so on. There, there, there's a secondary effect upon adulthood, correct? Yes, and I think uh, when you look back historically, the uh, positive connotations of adulthood, of being a grown-up, of, of possessing wisdom and insight, is just completely lost because now that the adolescents are the ones that have all these... Uh, positive attributes, uh, you have a situation where those positive attributes are, are seen as a, as a kind of, you almost, you almost aristocratize the, the, uh, the adolescent, but and in turn uh, delegitimate being a grown-up, uh, being biologically mature. What you're basically saying is that these adults are, in a sense, uh, lacking in the finer qualities uh, that make a society interesting, the finer qualities that make a society sensitive and, and, and emotionally uh, interesting. So if adults you know, somehow become exhausted of these attributes, they no longer have this capacity to yield to new experience, to be open to new possibilities, to be sensitive to the problems that confront society, that adulthood itself becomes less and less attractive. And I think in the world that we live today, you'll find that, that in general, adulthood has got a very bad press uh, to the point at which a lot of uh, individuals who are growing up in their 20s and their 30s uh, don't want to be adults. They would rather stay uh, as, as youth and they would rather, you know, sort of kind of uh, do everything possible to retain their youthful characteristics. 
just because from their point of view, you, you know, you stop being a player once you become a genuine grown-up adult. That's the way it's seen today, and particularly in the Anglo-American world. Well, Frank, I've said this before, and I hope you agree with me that I've been teaching, I was teaching for a long, long time, and I really learn more from my students than they ever learned from me. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> this, is, this is your experience. Hopefully, that's a, that's a very well, unique experience in higher education. When, when, I, when I would hear people say that, Frank, I would want to say, well, well then why aren't you paying them? Why are they paying you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, the thing you describe is what I call socialization in reverse where you basically are giving up your authority as a teacher. You're basically saying that um, learning is not, not based upon hard work, wisdom, struggling to master a discipline, but that anybody with, a, you know, with a, the most minimal insight is in some shape or form your equivalent. Now, there is some truth in the fact that you and I can learn from everybody, you know, from going into the shop, talking to the person behind the cash register, all the way to the to the driver of a bus, you know, when we talk to them, we're learning about their experience. But there's a difference between learning uh, about people's experience and actually the fact that when it comes to the knowledge and the transmission of knowledge and, and the transmission of ideas, you know, students are in a very different space, moral and intellectual space than teachers are. And I, I get really, really uh, worried when we uh, sort of uh, outsource our authority we, go, we, we give up our capacity to intellectually inspire and lead and end up in a very kind of craven way, subordinating ourselves to the, the current prejudice about the wonders of youth. You know, one of the losses that we will add here, not only the loss of the value of adulthood, of being grown up, but it really expands beyond the older individuals to... Uh, the sense of the past, the past entirely, and that this sense of the past is often reduced to, oh, nostalgia or your golden age thinking, uh, but but you mean something, you, you actually use the term sense of the past. Uh, what, what Define that for us. What is a good sense of the past, the people that adults should possess? I think by a sense of the past, what I'm really talking about is the capacity to develop a, an organic relationship with the experiences uh, of our ancestors and to be able to uh, use and hopefully even develop the legacy of their experience. I think the sense of the past uh, creates a, a kind of cultural continuity, which, which gives us a grounding. And I think ultimately an essential grounding to know who we are as individuals. And in many respects, one of the reasons why there is such a, such a phenomenal obsession with identity today is because so many people of the younger generations don't know where they've come from. And because so many young kids has, have been dispossessed of their cultural heritage, uh, they do become uh, disoriented. and. I think the, that's the first problem. You know, the second issue that is linked to this and why the sense of the past is, is really so important is because uh, if we don't know where we come from, if we haven't got any, any clarity about uh, the, you know, what, what a human being is all about, what, what, what the legacies and the, and, the, and, and the insights of our ancestors were, then we become in many ways 
uh, intellectually ultimately quite illiterate. And uh, you can see that today by the fact that uh, history, which people see as just another subject, just one more subject to kind of plow through, has become devalued of its content. Uh, in America and in, in Northern Europe, England in particular, you have a veritable uh, turning in on the past where you kind of essentially try to organize a crusade about everything that has gone on beforehand. And instead of uh, developing a sense of the past, you kind of develop a sense of, sen of uh, uh, senselessness towards the past, where you want to leave the past behind and create what, I, what we call a year zero history, that everything good uh, facing us in the world today begins now or began not so long ago. And everything bad uh, is something that occurred in the past. And we have to somehow create this wall and make sure that we don't allow ourselves and our children to be influenced by the big, uh, the main big thinkers of the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition is something that we want to sort of see as having not only no significance, but also having a, ultimately a negative influence upon our world today. I, I, I think what you just said is exactly right about the damage the psychic damage done to an ego that has no sense of the past. You rob them of continuity, as, as, you, as you just put it. They don't, you, you've told them, you've taken away any sense of where they come from. Now, uh, for our listeners who are parents with teenagers, uh, how do they transmit the old, the past, to their own children when the culture and even maybe the schools that their children attend seem very happy to to leave any past behind well it's a very very difficult question i mean i've dealt with that personally uh, by developing the tactic with my wife that every time my son would come home from school and he would talk about a lot of the stuff that we, we thought was wrong, uh, morally wrong, and they, they weren't in any shape or form values that we felt he should take seriously. We developed this tactic over 13 years of his education by basically saying that's what they say in school, but the Ferretis think like this. And we're continually using that format. This is what they say. But this is what we think. And after a while, he developed a certain pride in taking our worldviews as his own and arguing against, you know, for example, in the school that he went to uh, was one where they were continually talking about nothing else but the damage to the environment. So instead of teaching geography, it was about the environment and the horrible things that were taking place. Instead of teaching history, they were talking about how the Industrial Revolution destroyed the environment. So we had to basically almost kind of uh, re-educate him, you know, sort of uh, to kind of, uh, kind of deal with that. And today the, the, the problems are even greater because in schools today, on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, and I'm just writing a, an essay on this, in, in many, many schools, when children arrive, they're six, seven, eight years old, they are given course material that tells them, look, Mary, look, Johnny, you think you're a, a girl, you think you're a boy, but isn't it much more exciting if you decide for yourself what your gender is? 
And what, what the teachers are doing is they're, um, they're sending these young kids on a journey of discovering whether they, re they really are a boy or a girl or something else. We're talking about little kids that haven't got the intellectual resources to argue back against that and say, I'm a boy or I'm a girl and fight tooth and nail to affirm who they are. Uh, what these schools are doing essentially is messing up their head. And that's why you have this situation where transgenderism is becoming so institutionalized in, in many, many schools uh, uh, throughout the Anglo-American world. Now, under those circumstances, what do you do? Uh, because very often you hear about this after the event, you know, when, when because these things are discussed in class, you don't hear about them. So what do you do? And I, and I think that what you have to do is almost uh, you're forced to educate your child yourself. You know, e you know, even if they go to a good school, you still have to educate them by teaching them the best of English literature. You've got to uh, acquaint them with the history of their community. You have to get them to understand the kind of values uh, that uh, you know sort of made them who they are, the kind of communities and families they come from. And I think in particular, you have to, I'm afraid, in the 21st century, we have to create a counterculture that, uh, that offers a, a view of the world that directly challenges the dominant uh, sort of uh, intellectual and moral narrative that's promoted in cultural institutions. Uh, in the United States and in, in, and in Britain. The book is 100 Years of Identity Crisis, Culture War Over Socialization. Professor Fioretti, thank you for joining us. Pleasure talking with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.